Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Herbert Smith Freehills Charities podcast. In this current series of podcasts, we're bringing you conversations with people inside charities, talking us through the issues they've grappled with and continue to face. My name's Richard Norwich and I'm a partner in the London office of HSF and I head up our work in the charities space. I'm joined by my colleague and senior associate, Rebecca Perlman, who's a specialist in charities and impact investment work. And today we have the very great privilege of speaking with Mr. Joss Saunders, who's the general counsel of Oxfam. Joss, welcome to the podcast and uh, Thank thanks you. very much for taking the time. For some of our guests on this podcast, their charities are perhaps a little bit less well known and uh, people have to spend a bit of time saying what it, what, what it is that their charities do. Uh, conscious Oxfam's a household name in many parts of the world, but also conscious that our listenership is global. Um, so we shouldn't make too many assumptions. Uh, but before we talk about Oxfam more specifically and your work there, Joss, perhaps um, we could kick off by you giving us a bit of introduction to you and your um, your career journey thus far. Sure. Thanks. Thanks, Richard. Uh, it's great to be here. Uh, my first job was in Uganda, in southwest Uganda, on the border with Rwanda. Uh, I was working with the, uh, the Church of Uganda there and working in a government high school. And I did that for a year. And, and when I got back, I had a place to read law and a place to read theology. And I had to choose between the two. And I naively thought that a UK legal qualification was exactly what East Africa needed. Um, after my exams, uh, I, I ended up getting a bit stuck in a, a job in the city and I spent six years in London doing commercial litigation. So I made an escape plan and the escape plan was to go west to Honduras to work in the rainforest on land rights. But I got diverted by my girlfriend, uh, now my wife, and instead of going west, we went east and she was a diplomat and we spent three years in Poland, where I worked uh, for Prince Charles, setting up a charity for him. And that was my first real involvement with uh, charities. I also taught law in the university in Warsaw. And so when we came back from uh, Poland, uh, I was hired by the charities team of a law firm in Oxford uh, with a firm that was actually acting for Oxfam. I was in the firm. The, the firm had had a long association with Oxfam. In fact, um, one of the partners had written the original uh, Oxfam constitution. Oh, wow. And the Oxfam recruited a finance director who was actually the first chartered accountant to be a finance director of Oxfam. It had always been development people before that. And this was in the, the mid-90s. And he arrived and said, where's the legal department? Uh, because he'd been working for a FTSE 100 company and, and used to a lot of lawyers around. And of course, yeah. there wasn't one. And so he gave me a call and said, uh, we're, we're going to hire a lawyer. Do you know anyone who'd be interested? And I said, oh, it's a shame it's not 10 years time because I'd really love to do it in 10 years. <laughs> and so put the phone down and, and I thought about it for a minute. And I called him back and said, have you thought about having somebody on secondment? And so he said, well, we haven't, but we'll give it a go. And so uh, I applied for the job, got the job. And then he said, do you want it on secondment? Or do you want to come full time? And I said, well, what would be best for Oxfam? And he said, let's try the secondment. And so I actually started off doing three half days, cycling up to uh, Summertown in North Oxford, where the Oxford office was based, and then cycling back down, um, being accompanied with a trainee. So between us, we did um, three days a week uh, in, in Oxfam. Wow. And that, that worked quite well for a few years. But of course, 
one of the troubles with being in-house in any organization is that once word gets around that you're there, the work tends to expand. And it, it just got to the point where it was a bit unmanageable. And so I reduced to a day a week. And actually, I, I still have a toehold in the law firm. It's uh, Blake Morgan is the firm. But I still have a toehold in that I'm a consultant for two days a month. And that gives me the opportunity to do some work for other international legal charities and international organizations, which I really enjoy. But I do recommend this thing about a split role, about working in uh, in a law firm and also uh, in a charity or another organization, because it gives you a sense of both professional distance, but also exposure to ideas. I think it's been a benefit to the law firm, but it's certainly been a benefit to Oxfam to have the ongoing uh, communication and what what uh, David Nussbaum, who is now it was the guy who who recruited me, who now runs the Elders, which is the group that Nelson Mandela and others set up. Is he said, um, "Don't come full time, or you'll go soft on us." That was his advice at the time. Uh, what did he mean by that? Uh, he meant that um, working in a charity, one of the tensions is that you have to get the best deal for your client, the organization, um, but also you're in an environment where essentially your whole business model is to give away all your money every year. <laughs> uh, and so there is a slight tension, he felt, between the the culture and the values of working in a charity and sometimes the need to take some quite tough business decisions, which, of course, we've seen during covid and lockdown and recessions where we've had to you know make some pretty tough uh, decisions and i think a sense of uh, professional distance can sometimes help with getting that balance right but it is difficult let's let's i suppose fo- focus on uh, oxfam a bit more keenly now and uh, i said at the start that a lot of people will will know of oxfam and obviously very active in lots of places in the world, but uh, I don't want to make the assumption that everyone listening to this knows uh, about Oxfam and its good work. Is it possible to even summarise in two minutes what it is that Oxfam does? Uh, We'll we'll give it a go, Richard. Um, (laughs) Oxfam is a humanitarian and development organisation. It's probably best known for its work in emergencies around the world, in dealing with water and sanitation. Cholera is a, a major killer. Uh, in emergencies. And so the provision of clean water, but also the ability to dispose of waste is incredibly important. And so that humanitarian imperative is actually what Oxfam was founded for uh, back during the the Second World War. And it also takes a long-term development approach where the idea of the humanitarian is that you have to respond to an emergency because of that humanitarian imperative. But actually, in the long term, people need to um, work their way out of poverty, if you like, that, that you need to address the long term uh, problems, which is where the development mandate comes in. So we call that the dual mandate. And then the third aspect, if you think about it, perhaps as three legs of a stool, you've got your humanitarian, you've got your development. And then the third is advocacy and campaigning, which is saying it's not enough to Uh, provide assistance when people need it most. It's not enough to help uh, and stand by them as they work their way out of poverty. You also have to ask, why are people uh, living in conditions of poverty in the first place? And often it's because of 
the rigged rules that we operate under. So the advocacy component has become increasingly important over the last 20 years, I'd say, and is looking at the way that the rules are made and the way that uh, people will remain stuck in inequality and in poverty if we don't manage to uh, look at the way in which conditions and, and the game is set, if you like. And that's the advocacy component. So those those are the three legs of the stool. It works in uh, 65 countries. Uh, there are 21 different members. There's an umbrella organization called Oxfam International, which has a new board headed by a, a Malaysian woman and the chief exec is a Colombian woman. Uh, and it's uh, rooted, I would say, in local communities in many different parts of the world. I mean, just unbelievable scale. Um, and, and you as general counsel, and is that's that's worldwide general counsel, I, I assume, uh, Giles. I mean, how does your role fit, fit into all of that? So my role is split 50-50 between uh, the British Oxfam, Oxfam GB as it's called, which was the the first Oxfam founded in Oxford in the UK as the Oxford Committee for Famine Relief in 1942. And it became Oxfam in order to save money because when the first advertisements were run, you had to pay by the word. So uh, when they said, right, how much will that be? What's your name? We said, the Oxford Committee for Famine Relief. They started starting up the money and we said, well, how about if we make it shorter? Uh, and so Oxfam was, was really introduced it as a name in order to save money. And that's the UK end. Um, I also spend half my time in the international organization, which is a, a Dutch registered uh, foundation called Oxfam International. And so it's, it's roughly 50-50 in my time. And how, how does legal, how do you in your role support those three legs of the stool that you were talking about before? Uh, that's a great question, and uh, it's challenging. Obviously, I can't can't do it on my own. We have a, a legal team. Uh, it's a relatively small team, and there's uh, given those two parts of the work that I do, the work for the UK organisation and the work for the global, there's actually two different teams. There's a, a team in the UK, um, which has a broad focus for anything that uh, relates to the UK organisation. So we have one lawyer who just looks after the shops. Oxfam has over 500 shops in the UK. That's a lot of property work that's handled mainly in-house with some outsourcing. And obviously there's other uh, business issues, if you like, in, in the UK that we have to deal with. Uh, we then got our international business operations. And thirdly, we've got the the program side of things, the uh, the way in which law works in the countries where we work. So when it when it comes to the international side, we have uh, a lawyer in Kenya uh, who deals with most of the legal issues in Africa. And then we have a lawyer in uh, in various other countries. So altogether in the global network of the 21 organizations, we've got 10 lawyers spread around the world. And I think that in terms of international work, it really splits into two. One is the work that's needed in order to make sure we can continue to operate. And that involves agreements with governments to be able to, to work in their countries. Uh, it involves uh, complicated banking arrangements. Uh, it involves a lot of logistics. So we export uh, humanitarian equipment and that often requires licenses. One of the, the big challenges at the moment is with the counter-terrorism legislation uh, and dealing in countries like Syria 
uh, where there's a lot of sanctioned organizations, we're having to apply for licenses the whole time to be able to uh, continue to work uh, in those areas. And then perhaps one of the most interesting on the program side of things, which works both to the development piece we were talking about, to the humanitarian piece and to the advocacy, is tackling issues like climate change from a legal perspective, looking at the law of war, international humanitarian law, looking at the challenge of the phenomenon that's, that's often been called uh, closing civic space, uh, space for civil society, uh, dealing with issues like uh, land rights. So the, what we try and do is combine technical expertise in dealing with some commercial legal areas with being aware of the impact of law and, for example, uh, we're very active in the climate change negotiations. Uh, in fact, we do some work with um, one of the partners at Herbert Smith Freehills in terms of the UNFCCC, the climate change negotiations, where one of the charities that, that Oxfam helped set up is the Legal Response Initiative, which provides real-time legal advice to negotiators from least developed countries at the climate change negotiations. So a really a wide uh, area of things and, and all of us tend to be generalists, but then specialize in one or two additional areas. Well, yeah, you just have to be an expert in everything <laughs> by the sounds or, of what you just or, or phone a friend. Yes, well, that's um, true, yeah. Or phone a friend, we have to know people who can help. We do get a lot of pro bono uh, support, actually, including uh, from Herbert yeah. Smith Freehills. Uh, so, uh, often we're working with networks of volunteer lawyers, we're working with academics, we're working with legal experts in different countries. I think I find sometimes with lawyers that they feel a little bit, um, I suppose, separated from the frontline work that people are doing on the ground, you know, all the great work with sanitation and the like that you were talking about, and, and maybe feel a bit disconnected from I suppose the ultimate delivery, although everything you're doing is, is hugely important to make that happen. It, is that anything you've ever struggled with personally, or have you always seen that connection, I suppose, that, that the work that you're doing, which maybe other people don't see, feeds really importantly into the final delivery of a project? Well, I think there is an interesting analogy with uh, water and sanitation work, really, which is if you think about lawyers as plumbers, uh, there was a, a wonderful academic called William Twining, who very much focused on um, law from a developing country perspective. And he, um, about 60 years ago, gave an inaugural lecture in Ulster um, called uh, Pericles and the Plumber. And he said, what is the job of a lawyer? Is the job of a lawyer to be a Periclean statesman dispensing wise advice from an ivory tower? Or is it to be a plumber and to be there uh, in the in the thickets of things and and sorting out the the pipework and the logistics to make things work? So I think that everything that we do has an impact. If it's about getting money to places, I remember after the tsunami back in um, Boxing Day 2004, one of the problems was that the impact of the tsunami in uh, countries like Indonesia was so devastating that the entire infrastructure uh, in some places was washed away and so getting the logistical details about hiring helicopters you know it's, it's technical work um mm. it's not it's not particularly visible but to to transfer money around to 
be able to deliver logistics, to employ people, to get banking arrangements are all things which require uh, legal skills, legal tools, not just legal, obviously it's financial, it's logistics and so on. So I think there's a fundamental uh, aspect for, for lawyers to think what they're doing is actually taking part in delivery. But it's not always easy. I mean, I remember for the first, I guess, four years of my time at Oxfam, I did feel a bit distanced from the programme. And it was actually only when the humanitarian team ran into some legal issues and, and got me involved that I I started feeling more, um, more able to enunciate the way in which the work I did was actually uh, contributing contributing to the whole and I've been very fortunate during during the 20 odd years that I've worked for Oxfam that I have been used by our humanitarian team also to to go to uh, discussions and workshops with people at the International Law Commission looking at what is the framework for international law of disasters and it's absolutely fascinating we're having to deal with uh, not just the law as we find it but the law as it should be or the law as it could be uh, to help extend those so Things like the draft articles on the rights of disaster affected people. Um, I was the the NGO representative at the the workshop that was actually uh, developing and critiquing some of those uh, draft legislation. And what I think people found interesting is that the academics and the representative of the UN and so on at that meeting assumed that Oxfam and NGOs generally would want the best possible deal for themselves and so lots of immunities from prosecution that sort of thing i said no we don't want that if we make mm. a mistake we need to be held accountable and therefore we do not want immunity from prosecution and i think that being able to enunciate that in a group of international academics and and business people was quite helpful and is i think one of the ways in which we can show that lawyers who are really embedded in their organizations, who are part of the culture, part of the, the management team of the organizations, can actually help to deliver outcomes that work for our client groups. Really interesting. Thank you, Justin. Thank you for those those insights. I mean, you, you talked about um, being a plumber. That was your, your analogy there. Um, and we, we've talked a little bit about your, I suppose, how how you joined Oxfam in the first place and what Oxfam looks like today. Um, is it possible to, to describe, you know, the, the, the continuum, the development over that 20 year period in your role as the in-house lawyer and how that has, well, I suppose that you've mentioned some of the new issues that have, have come up um, and also a little bit, I suppose, about how Oxfam has, has changed. But how, how do you reflect on that journey in your time as GC? When I started, which was in 1998 with Oxfam and, and a couple of years before, because I'd been involved uh, as an external lawyer to Oxfam, um, people thought of uh, charity law as really doing two things. One is registering new charities, which obviously if you were an existing charity, didn't really apply because you're already there. And the second was dealing with things like the shops. And in fact, we had had some lawyers who'd been dealing with the shop leases before. And at that time, there was a group that had recently been set up, which was called the Charity Lawyers Group. Uh, there's a Charity Lawyers Association, which is a wonderful uh, network of uh, experts in, in charity law and finance, mainly mm. consisting of people from law firms. 
But the Charity Lawyers Network was set up to work with the in-house lawyers. And at the point I joined in 1998, there were 15 of us. And there's now over 300. And I think that shows the way in which uh, maybe it's not altogether positive that the way our culture has become more legalized, but but maybe also showing the way in which lawyers can actually make a positive contribution. And, And one example of that is that as well as the lawyers who are working within charities, and as I say, in the, in the sector in the UK, there's probably about 300 of us uh, now, is that we also have a lot of people who work with us through our pro bono networks, through our volunteering. And one initiative I wanted to mention, which I've been very pleased to see develop over the years, is the way in which lawyers and people working in the business of law more widely uh, in whatever field of specialism they are and wherever they're working in the world can actually get involved and work with charity, uh, with charities, uh, using their legal skills. And and so the primary mechanism that we've got that for the moment is called Lawyers Against Poverty. And, and there's now an independent charity which we incubated within Oxfam uh, called Lawyers Against Poverty, which really is designed to say, you don't have to be working full time for a charity. In fact, you may be retired, you may be a student. There are ways in which everybody can get involved, whether that's supporting that humanitarian work, which may be slightly more specialized and needs specialist skills or or the development work or the advocacy and campaigning, which is really open to everybody to get involved. That's one of the ways in which we've seen the the growth in the desire and appetite of the legal community to to come on board and, and actually help make uh, change happen. And I think the other way in which we've seen things develop is an increase in the need for specialist skills. So it's a a combination really of uh, a, a generalist approach. So in my role as general counsel, I see very much the role of general in terms of um, being able to turn turn our hands to, to anything that arises, but also the need for specialism. And, and that combination of having the generalist perspective and being able to draw on the specialist skills has been really interesting and I think has developed a lot in the last 20 years. I think the subject matters that we've been looking at in terms of international humanitarian law, the law of war, refugee law, uh, the law of disasters. I mean, when I started 20 years ago, there wasn't really a body of law called the law of disasters. And thanks largely to the work of the International uh, Red Cross, the whole field of disaster law is now a a very well respected uh, subfield in in academic law. uh, And of course, is really important to practitioners as well. So lots and lots of developments, I'd say, over the last 20 years. That's fascinating. Thank you. Thank you so much, Joss, um, for that insight into your journey through the charity sector um, and the wider role that lawyers play um, within the industry. For anyone interested in reading more about the topics that we've covered, we will include some relevant background links in the podcast notes, together with a link to the HSF Charities Practice webpage. Thanks again for joining us and goodbye for now.